I think we haven't been very creative on the employer side of trying to figure out what we could do that might help employees and that might help us recruit and that might help us retain, even if there's no big clear savings the way there is with taking your office away. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today, I'm talking with and learning from Peter Capelli. Peter's a professor of management at Wharton School, and he's the director of Wharton's Center for Human Resources. And what got my attention was that he's written a book called Future of the Office. So I wanted to talk to somebody who had studied why we go to offices, what we don't like about offices, no particular axe to grind, doesn't feel like he's at one end of the spectrum or the other. He's not an employee or an employer. He's just studied it. And we talk about, you know, having zero offices, fully remote work. That's been a thing that's been studied. We talk about offices being back in the office full time. That's something that was normal before the pandemic. And we talk about hybrid work. People have been studying hybrid work since the smog in LA in the 1970s, the dot-com boom that drove up the cost of office space in Silicon Valley forced Silicon Valley firms to go hybrid in the late 90s, early 2000s. So there's a lot of research about the impact on employees of hybrid work. So I talked to Peter about that. And then one of the most interesting things that he shares is a piece of research from the Financial Times or a piece of research published in the Financial Times, Google's mobility data for a particular Thursday, 12th of May. And then to look at where the UK and the US is. And the UK is more at home still than any other country in the world that Google published data for. Greece, the Czech Republic, almost completely back to normal. The UK, we're still 20 odd points down from where we were in terms of occupancy levels and numbers of commuters. Canada and the US, 20%, Ireland, 17-ish. But lots of other European countries, only a few percentage points away from where they were before. Not that you would know, because that to me has been something that has come as a surprise. It's not the narrative that I hear in the British press. So we'll put a link to the FT article in the show notes. Great conversation with Peter. I really enjoyed talking about some of these topics. We also touch a bit about AI and why there is a move. There's some meta trends about commoditization of labor and the 
fall off of training. He's also written, he wrote an earlier book about hiring. So we talk a little bit about, should you go to college? Should you go to university? Is it worth it? One of his earlier books. And then what's actually happening in the dynamics of the hiring market, which I think is really interesting as people are maybe trying, struggling to hire employees in the current market. Great conversation with Peter. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm Peter Capelli. I'm professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania here in Philadelphia. Okay. And what is your, do you have a specialist subject? Well, I study uh, issues around the workplace and, you know, that is a topic area that in the social sciences, a lot of people cross disciplines with. So the economists tend to be very good about telling you what's happening, not so much about why. The sociologists are better at why certain things are happening at a kind of more firm level story or within companies why things are happening and the psychologists are better at trying to tell you what is motivating some of those changes you know so i'm have some interest in all three of those approaches but you know i sort of am interested in work and the workplace in general where does that interest spring from uh well i uh, went to graduate school at oxford and studied labor economics there i got back to the u.s i was at mit and we were looking at union issues and how unions operate or the trouble they were in at the time. And I came to Wharton and I had to teach more behavioral stuff, which is, huh? you know, a little more the uh, psychology and the behavioral kinds of issues around organizational sociology. So I'm sitting in a department that is like that. So I spent more time there. We spent a fair amount of time doing public policy research spent about 10 years in and out of Washington running a research center, especially for the Department of Education, about education in the workplace. And, you know, that was a topic which spans fields. So there are people who just study education. There are people who just study labor markets. But, you know, there weren't that many people interested in the connection between the two, right? So I think those spaces which are kind of empty in the academic world are ones that have always interested me. So I wrote, I wrote a book about will college pay off was the title of it, you know, and it's thinking about exactly that question. You know, if you, we know how college works, we know how labor markets work, but let's look at the intersection. And, you know, I wrote a book about hiring, which frankly, nobody knew much about, about how hiring actually works as opposed to the theories in the labor market about it. And so, you know, it kind of comes from the questions you're asking. And so with going to college, does it depend what you studied and where you studied it? Uh, well, it certainly does. I think what we knew there is the economists have, have beaten that topic up for a long time about what happens to college graduates, right? So we know all kinds of things about different college majors pay off in different ways. But the question I was asking was, does it pay off to go to college at all, right? And you may think those are the same questions, but they're not. And in the U.S., the reason is because, you know, only a bare majority of people graduate from college. So, you know, going to college and graduating from college are two really different things. And what's the graduation percentage then? Well, if people going to school full time, four year colleges, only 40 percent of those students graduate on time in four years. Never, ever crossed my mind that it was that low. 
Yeah. And if you look at uh, people who are not going to school, everybody all together, right? Only about 43% graduate in eight years. And some people, you know, never graduate. But we, we never know for sure in the U.S. because you could always come back in retirement and graduate, right? So, so it, it's hard to know. But, you know, if you don't graduate, it doesn't do you much good. If you go to a school that requires you to take out a lot of loans, you could graduate and get a reasonable job and still might not pay off very well for you because it was so expensive to go. And so, you know, that was a question that was not easily answered by the existing kind of literature. And so would you advise your children to go to college? Well, uh, I think if I was uh, really smart, I would have maybe said we should move to a country where college is not so expensive, right? So um, (laughs) the average American education, college education costs about four times more than the OECD average. And the average American parent pays eight times as much as the average parent in an OECD country. So, you know, that would have been probably the first thing to do is live someplace else. But I think, you know, education for a lot of people with more money is not simply about getting your kid a job. But I can tell you my oldest son, who has a classics degree in college, and and he wished after he graduated that he, he had done something more practical because at least in the U.S. these days, there's no clear transition between college and getting a job. You know, employers don't hire you anymore to train and educate you. They're looking for people who already have skills. And so, you know, it's quite a difficult thing. You know, it's quite a problem we've got, actually. Yeah. The lady who's now managing the podcast for us did her master's degree in Ireland because that was a less expensive place to do a master's degree. Yeah, well, she's probably smart. <laughs> <laughs> and the hiring question. So that's interesting, the way you looked at that, you know, should you go to college at all? When you looked at hiring, what was the, what was the sort of tangential way you looked at hiring? Well, I, w- I wrote this book after the Great Recession started called Why Good People Can't Get Jobs, because there was a kind of myth, you know, that by about 2012 or so, a couple of years after the worst of the Great Recession, that employers were complaining they couldn't find anybody to hire, which was, you know, just ridiculous. And uh, I started to look at kind of what was actually happening in the hiring process. And, you know, employers had created a process during the dot-com boom that put most everything online. So it was electronic processes of recruiting people, finding them, and then sorting them out, right? And that worked fine, I think, for them when it was really hard to hire. After the Great Recession, they were getting so many applicants. You know, they were getting maybe a thousand applicants per position. And even now, or at least just before the pandemic, you know, the average corporate job opening was getting several hundred applicants per job. And so the process of getting hired meant that you were going through these electronic applicant tracking system you know, software, which was screening you based on keywords in your resume and things, right? So, and they were building requirements into the software. So for example, let's say first requirement is you must have a college degree, okay? Maybe half the applicants have that. And the second requirement was, let's say that uh, you had to have had three years experience, maybe half the applicants have that, right? Well, you're already down to only one in four applicants 
are going to make it through that hurdle because you have to hit both, right? And so if you had like five or six criteria like that, pretty soon almost nobody makes it through the screening process. So I had uh, somebody wrote to me about their own experience at their company and they said they had a standard, reasonably standard engineering position, but only, well, I think they told me that no one, they had 25,000 applicants, no one made it through the applicant. <laughs> and I had people tell me that they tried to apply for their own job and their own and <laughs> Couldn't get it. Couldn't get it. Right? Couldn't get an interview, right? Couldn't get through that process, right? So there were crazy things about the way we hire, right, That's, uh, that people don't, don't know. It's not a particularly objective process. I, I find it fascinating because I, I work with and talk to a lot of CEOs and those that say to me, we can't hire great people. Yeah, right. It, it's, it's just not true. They, I bet if I, what I say to them is, I think you should go and apply for a job for your company. You know, is your job ad so boring, even you aren't prepared to work for yourself? <laughs> and then when you apply, see what happens. And, and it's just, I think those that do find it awful and can fix it. But those CEOs that aren't having a problem hiring are making it their priority. Yeah, sure. As opposed to saying, well, it's somebody else's job. Yeah. Well, you know, in most of the world since the 1970s, most of the in the uh, Western world, anyway, uh, it's been a buyer's market for, you know, since the 1970s, right? We've had pretty high unemployment rates. We had lots of effort uh, by education providers to train people, particularly in the U.S., to try to figure out what the employers want. The students are killing themselves trying to figure out what will help them get a job. And the employers, you know, it was a buyer's market. The unions had effectively collapsed. Things were pretty easy for them. And when they get slightly harder, you know, as they are now, slightly harder, they're saying, I think, sort of understandably, I haven't done anything differently. And now people are not around. It must be them. But of course, this is the way markets work. If you say suddenly I haven't done anything different, but customers are not showing up in my store, I might look to see what has changed and then what I have to do to adapt. But I think a lot of politicians and consultants have kind of persuaded employers that it's not their fault, you know, that there's nothing they should do. It's just the Great Recession. It's affecting everybody. Yeah. And also that it's somehow a public policy problem, you know, that somehow government should supply you with We hear that a lot. As an employer, I always find it fascinating, though, that two-thirds of the CVs I get sent, you know, there's a job open, you can apply, it's easy to apply, and about two-thirds of the CVs that turn up, I can see no discernible reason why this person has applied for the role, and they don't make it easy for me. There's no, <laughs> occasionally somebody will fill in a covering letter, and it's like, oh, somebody's tried to work out what parts of their experience I might be interested in. Fantastic. Let me interview them. Right, right. I think there's a reason for that. And that is partly we've made it so easy to apply, right? So when people are looking for jobs now, they're applying for hundreds of positions. And if you look at the, they call it the hiring funnel, you know, you look at the number of people who apply and then the number who get interviewed, et cetera. You know, if you apply like through a job board, the odds that you'll get hired, the base rate probability is less than 1%, right? And in that case, you know, they're just throwing out 100 resumes and take a shot. 
right? I suspect, though, though, those people, their chance of getting hired is even less than 1%. Uh, well, I mean, we can, that's the, you know, that's kind of what the data and show, So, right? you know, where, where these CEOs are saying, I can't hire to find talent, people are going, I thought there was a talent shortage and I can't get hired. Yeah. And it's fault on both sides. Yeah, it f- falls on both sides. I, I think the employees figure, the applicants figure, uh, you know, it's all going through a computer screen anyway. And I'm not sure I can guess what they're looking for. So I'll just take a chance and shoot it in. And so... You know, they feel that they don't have any incentive to, to customize it because it's the software doesn't read the cover letter. It just reads the, the CV. So maybe they'll like it. Maybe they won't. I don't know. Uh, I'll give it a shot. Right. And then the employer says, well, they didn't customize it. So I don't want to hire them. Well, OK, well, you know, <laughs> then you're in this downward spiral. Well, right? I, so but if I look at the CV and I think, well, that's interesting. I email them and I say, hey, that's brilliant. Thank you for applying. Tell me why you think you'd be great for this job. Hmm never hear back you mean they don't they don't reply back no because it's so it's just fascinating maybe it's just too much effort maybe they didn't really want the job i I don't know it's just fascinating well i think there's a scale problem on both sides right so now we're hearing what you're describing people here call ghosting right like is in dating you just don't never get back to them right but employers at least here ghost candidates all the time you know it's kind of the norm you know you just never hear back Right. I hate that on the bottom of a job ad. If you don't hear back from us in four weeks, consider yourself not hired. It's like, mm. like don't don't go work for those people. Yeah. Well, you know, in the states, you don't even have that disclaimer. You just never know, right? Thinking about the policy work you did for training in the workplace. Yeah. Did you come up with any? I mean, recommendations or sort of some theory about the impact of workplace training. And, you know, how to do it well, not do it well was, you know, or maybe you didn't come up with anything you presented, but you've got a firm opinion. Well, I think we have a pretty good idea what's going on. I mean, we know that training is extremely valuable. Uh, We also know that the training that employers care the most about is work-based learning, right? I've actually done this like an apprenticeship program. Yeah. At least in the States, the apprenticeship programs are incredibly small. There are a few of them around unions, And those shrunk when the union shrunk, right? But I think everybody recognizes those are pretty good. There's standards behind them, et cetera. The problem is trying to make them work economically for employers. And, you know, here's how the reason union apprenticeship programs work is because after you get the training, historically, you would pay that back through your union dues going forward. Yeah, yeah. But if that's not the case, then we have to figure out some way how we're going to make this work. And, you know, the historical way is that we pay you sort of less while you're learning. And as you become more valuable, we gradually pay you more and then poof, there you go. Right. And, you know, like the consulting firms do this now, the accounting firms do this, they hire kids out of college and they can organize the work in ways where you're learning by doing, right. You're supervised by somebody who's only been there two years when you start. Right. And then you get a little better. You're supervised by somebody who was there six years. It's how we train doctors, you know, all that stuff. But companies don't do that anymore. And they don't do any formal classroom training anymore. And why that is a good question. They believe it's because, you know, they're just going to train people and they're going to leave. But they don't quite realize that some of that training actually works for the employer. Right. It's not that we are fronting the money on this. So. Not to blame employers for this, but employers, at least in the States, they have all the power, right? I mean, they really do. The unions have no power. 
the government is, you know, as a regulator can be a real pain in the neck. But on these issues, government isn't regulating. Employees have virtually no power. So it's whatever the employers do that matters. And employers have backed away from training in a big way. And part of the reason is because they don't think people will stay around. And to some extent, that's true. And the reason they leave, certainly one of the main reasons, is because they don't see any way of advancing. Partly because they're not getting trained, so they <laughs> go someplace else, right? And Self-fulfilling it's, prophecy. It's really bizarre, right? But that is what's happening, right? So the big problem for people beginning the labor market is how do I get that initial work experience? Because nobody wants to give it to me. And apprenticeship programs would be perfect. Everybody knows that, but we can never get them going, never scale them up, because we can't crack that problem of making it pay for employers to do it. Uh, without a union kind of model, which we know how that one works. Once you get that initial experience, then you're suddenly way more valuable because employers don't want to hire anybody who doesn't have it already because they think they can't train or whatever, you know. So so it's a, it's it's strange and bizarre, but it's hard to get out of it. Yeah, in the UK, the process is, I guess, very different. Uh, certainly at the moment, we've had four apprentices through here. Some of them have gone on to amazing jobs. Some are still here full time, and you know you pay them less, but you get you know uh, some of the, you get their employees' national insurance back, and even even a grant to cover some of their salary. So, and it's well regulated. But one of the things I wanted to talk about is the future of the office and where you see that going, and where do we end up back? Do some companies end up back? Do some end, companies end up? You know, we've as clients, we've got. We've got clients who are full-time back in the office, five days a week, nine to five. And we've got other clients who are almost completely virtual, but not quite, but who would historically been office-based. And we've got other clients who were uh, 100% remote before the pandemic. They've always been 100% remote. And so all of them are struggling to work out, you know, where they are, where they're going, what the trends might be, what the drivers are. Yeah, I think that's the right question is what are are the drivers? And I think we have been chasing, I think, uh, what are the interesting situations which are not necessarily the reality. So we're we're chasing the extremes, right? And what is so novel about it is the employee experience. So that's what we talk about, right? Why do employees want this? Would this be good for them? Wouldn't this be wonderful, et cetera? And what we're not thinking about much is does it work for the employers? And what might work for the employers, right? Because if it doesn't work for the employers, it's not going to happen. You know, employers don't do things for their employees simply because employees want them. Otherwise, we'd have higher pay and all kinds of other things, right? Unlimited holiday. Yeah, unlimited, all kinds of wonderful things, right? Um, I think what we are seeing at the moment, despite all the rhetoric about how wonderful this might be and all the stories about people who are working remotely, is that if you look across at least the Western world right now, there was an interesting piece in the Financial Times about a week or so ago that had Google location data on office workers by country, and it compared it to the percentage of those office workers who were in the office 2019, so just before the pandemic, right? And for most of Europe, most everybody is back in the office. I mean, so down to like maybe five, six, maybe 10% of the people who were in the office or or that number were in the office in 2019 are out now. So 90% are back, which you'd never know listening to the discussions, right? The two outliers are the US and the UK. And the UK has the most people 
still working remotely. Um, and it's 24%, I think, in the UK. And the Google location data say it's 20% in the US. The, the US data from the census says it's less than that. A few months ago, they said it was 15%. Right? So almost everybody's back, actually. And I think, at least in the US, the employers seem to want everybody back. There were a, a survey a little while done by the Slack people, the software people, and they, they claimed they were surveying executives and managers who were making decisions. And they said 76% of those people thought it was very important to have everybody back in the office, which is kind of the way, I guess, to bet. The problem, I think, on the employer side is, you know, what works for us? And what's interesting here is to think about why should we have people work remotely? Well, one answer is we just went through this pandemic where we were forced to put people remotely. And according to the employers, it seemed to work pretty well. So the employees quite rightly say, well, why can't we keep doing it then, right? And that's a reasonable argument. And employers can't answer that. They have a problem. Right? Because then the employees feel you're just, this is just your personal pick or quirkiness uh, or ideology or something that doesn't want us to work remotely. But for the employer's side, I think they have to say, why going forward might this work for us or not? One version which does work for them pretty clearly is the permanent remote, right? And that means uh, just go away and get your work done because we're going to take your office back. And that saves us a lot of money. So the CFOs from the very beginning of the pandemic have thought that that's a good idea. The rest of the organization thinks it's a bad idea. And not all employees want to do that, of course. It looks like, depending what survey you're using, a pretty small percentage, maybe 10, 15% of people never want to go back into an office, right? So then you're talking about some sort of hybrid model. And the thing about a hybrid model is it's quite difficult for the employer to manage. So, because the schedules get complicated. Everybody wants to choose what day they want to work from home based on what their kids are doing, et cetera. But then, you know, it turns out we never have more than 20% of people in the office. And we're trying to get people to be in the office because we think maybe there are synergies or something like that. So how do we make that work? And that's not so clear how it's going to work for the employers. You can see how it's harder, right? But how will it help the employees, right, is the second question. You know, for the employees, here's what's different. During the pandemic, you had no choice. Everybody had to work from home. Offices were shut down. Now they're asking you to raise your hand and say, where do you work? Where do you want to work? If it's a hybrid sort of story. And we know a lot about that because that model we've been studying since about 2001, at least in the States, telecommuting started before that, in the 1970s in the smog period in Los Angeles. But remote work started in Silicon Valley, dot-com period, because real estate was really expensive. And what we learned from that was, if you raised your hand and were the person volunteering to work remotely, your career suffered on every dimension you could manage, you could measure rather, right? So promotions were slower and there were fewer of them. Wage increases were less. People's commitment was lower. Their identification with the work is lower because you didn't have human connections, which is what drove most of this stuff, right? So that's the bad news, right? If you have this environment where some are in the office and some are home, if you're choosing to be home, it's not going to work particularly well for you, right? And on the employer side, the hybrid model, which is what everybody kind of wants or most people want, it's hard for the employers to figure out how that's going to help us unless 
it allows us to hire people more cheaply and unless it makes it easier for us to retain them. And that's true, but not if everybody does it. <laughs> if everybody does it, then it doesn't buy you anything as an employee. Well, I live in central London. I get paid a central London salary. I don't want to come back to the office. Well, do you know what? We might replace you with somebody who lives in Chennai or Cape Town yeah. or Utah, and I'll save myself 50%. Yeah. And, of course, employers could have always done that. And one of the things you're touching on is you don't need – any visa permissions or anything to hire somebody in another country, at least I think that's true in the UK too, it's true in the US. As long as they're doing their work in the other country, you can do that pretty easily, right? And that is why some employers initially thought this was going to be a good idea. Problem is, you know, having remote workers is like having independent contractors, permanent remote workers. And for lots of reasons, they have not replaced employees. And a lot of it has to do with commitment, identification with the work, and the ability to be there and have conversations and synergies and that kind of stuff. Some jobs, it doesn't matter so much. You know, IT jobs, computer programming jobs, you could take that and go home. It's not going to matter much. But for many jobs, it does. And we don't have a good answer as to can we make that work. The employers also, in fairness, a lot of them have an ideological prejudice. Many of them believe that if you're home, you're goofing off, right? You're watching TV. They don't have evidence for that. And in fact, it looked like they just refuted that during the pandemic, but nevertheless, they believe it. And one of the places you're seeing this was the big expansion of monitoring software, tattleware, we call it, right? Yeah. Watches what you're doing at home, like we're doing now. And that becomes its own ridiculous exercise, right? Because then the employees try to defeat the the tattleware, right? They a third of American workers say they put tape over their camera like that, you know, so that you can't see them. And there's software that will jiggle your mouse. To <laughs> there, you know, so it ends up being stupid. But nevertheless, uh, many employers believe that. So, you know, we they're stuck, right? And so it sounds to me, if I was to pull those things together, that you think the UK is in particularly living in a delusional bubble. <laughs> because in the rest of the Europe, everyone's already back to work. It's just the UK press is not talking about that. That What they're talking about is, you know, Airbnb saying everyone can work from home forever. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was talking to somebody the other day and this, this guy had said, you guys in tech, he said, you're all on drugs. He said, you know, I work in a construction company. We've been back in the office the moment we could. Everyone's been in the office 100% of the time. And so there is a bit of that, maybe. And it also sounds as though you feel that over time, the pressures are just going to push. You know, at the minute, if people are being asked to come back three days a week, it'll be four days a week, it'll be five days a week. Ultimately, it'll be five days a week. And if you're an employee and you think this is great and you think your human rights are being offended by being asked to come to work, think carefully because actually this will massively impact your career prospects if you don't actually find yourself living commutable distance from your employer's office. I think that is largely right. I think what I'm trying to do is I'm not telling a normative story about what we should do, right? But the practical story at the moment is employers do seem to want people to come back to work and they've already brought lots of people back to the office. They can't see clearly how it's going to help them to allow people to work remotely. The dilemma is it does seem to help a lot of employees, right? So here's something that might work for employees. So couldn't we find some way to 
make this work for the employers. I think until we get further along on that, if you are an employee, you probably will pay a price if you are working remotely and your colleagues are in the office in terms of, I mean, it's not too surprising, right? Because if you're hanging out with the bosses, you're going to get more attention, your ability to shine. If they're thinking about promoting somebody or giving somebody an interesting assignment, they're going to give it to the person that they see every day and not somebody who they Zoom with once every couple of weeks. So I think that's, you know, that is still the inevitability here. I think the employers should probably work a little harder to figure out, could we do some of these things that might make it easier on employees? So, for example, why is it that people like working from home? Well, we assume we know the answer, but probably not what we think. We assume it's just because they don't like the commute, right? But not everybody has a difficult commute. So it's not a story for everybody. I think a lot of what people like about it was that they're managed differently. They're managed with more hands-off, less uh-huh. micromanagement, and the bosses are more inclined to say, look, uh, I don't care when you do this, but here's what you need to have done by the end of the week. Evidence seems to suggest hours of work are longer than they were before the pandemic, during while we're working remotely, rather, hours of work are greater. But the employees don't seem to care much about that because they are fitting it into their day, um, taking the dog for the walk, letting the kids in, setting them down, giving them some, you know, snacks and things. And then I go back and work after dinner. So, you know, for employees, it seems like it might work. Couldn't we give employees in the office more control over how they did their work as well? And couldn't we give people more control over time off when they can use it, even if they aren't going to be permanently remote and even if they're not going to be every Tuesday they get to work from home or something like that. You know, I think we haven't been very creative on the employer side of trying to figure out what we could do that might help employees and that might help us recruit and that might help us retain, even if there's no, otherwise no big clear savings the way there is with taking your office away. Yeah, I remember visiting Virgin Mobile's offices a few years ago when I was a judge on a, um, employee experience awards program and I was amazed they had some neat software which allowed people it allowed the employees to trade shifts no management intervention and so back to your point about workplace training employees had sort of guaranteed workplace training as big chunk of time for workplace training but then just that ability to juggle your own shift using an app was massively impactful on the staff retention within the call center environment Yeah, I think that's a great example because uh, we've known this for a long time. This is sometimes called flex time, where the employees get to negotiate and trade, as you say, trade shifts. It seems to work really well. The employees like it a lot. And yet it's being used less and less. Uh, What we're doing instead is software to schedule for us, right, to create the optimal schedules, right, from an efficiency point of view. Rather than letting the employees negotiate it themselves, it seems to me, you know, it's a great example of optimization leading to suboptimal outcomes. We could do more of that stuff. And you, uh, you talk about that in, in some of your other work, that sort of, you know, artificial intelligence and the commodification of labor. It seems to me that you just end up with, um, it's a bit like that Henry Ford quote, allegedly, you know, don't send me a guy with a brain, just send me a guy with two hands, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it seems to me that most organizations would be better off with people with brains than 
than people who can't think, you know, particularly if you're delivering some sort of customer experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, as you say, this is a a discussion which has gone on for 100 years at least, right, about whether from the top down management can organize things in optimal ways and to what extent in doing so we so irritate the employees that we lose the ability, their ability to help us and we also demotivate them. And, you know, there are lots of reasons why we have continued to push further, despite lots of evidence to the contrary, we continue to push toward the optimization story. So I had an article in the Harvard Business Review about a year ago describing that problem. And some of it has to do with education. We have a lot more people in leadership positions who are engineers now by training and background than we had a decade or a generation ago. You know, two generations, three generations back, there were a lot of engineers, right? who have that optimizing kind of orientation. And also we got rid of management training, right? So we used to take engineers and then put them through two years of a management training program at the corporations that would basically teach them about managing people. And those are gone, right? So you throw people into these supervisory jobs, they end up as leaders, their background is finance, which is optimization underlying paradigm or engineering, and their big goal is to think about how little labor can we use, which by itself might not be so terrible, but things like software to do your scheduling, which seems more efficient, only makes sense if you don't know how people actually work. And they don't know how people actually work. So we end up with these systems which seem efficient, but they end up being inefficient. Do you think there's a way to turn the tide on that? Well, it's really difficult. I think in fairness to the top executives, they get rewarded for things which don't look like managing your people well. It takes a lot of time to manage your people well. It takes a different kind of personality. It probably is harder for people who are not so extroverted and more introverted. And they get recognition and attention for fancy finance deals and fancy strategy choices and not so much for the day-to-day managing your employees so that they work hard and care about what they're doing, right? So, it, it yeah, it's quite difficult. I, I think there are problems with financial accounting that drive a lot of this in terms of the emphasis on cutting costs, right, which is something that the finance industry investors love. So that's part of the problem. It's interesting. I, I, you know, at one level, it's dispiriting that, these trends exist but at the other level it means that if you are going against the current and you hire great people and you put them in an amazing environment where they can do great work your opportunity to compete for customer loyalty is huge and i chatted to uh, fred reichelt a few weeks ago and he was saying look I, he said i made some good money at bain but i made much more money investing in the company that dominated customer experience in every industry you don't end up with great customer experience if you don't have great staff who love their company yeah yeah uh, managed by great people and so you know it just sounds to me that that opportunity to compete on on experience is never going to go away if if engineers and finance people continue to rule the world i think that's true uh, the problem is can they persuade the investors that this is working, right? And the investors can easily look at your cost structure 
they can't easily see what's happening with customer experience and how this may play out in the long term, right? So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why this sub-optimization happens that have to do with reporting requirements and financial accounting and what the investors see and, you know, all that sort of stuff, which is, you know, which is a bigger problem. Well, you've got, you've got some big trends there, the sort of non-training, how do we take out labor? How do we not do training because it's expensive? All of these things are different, but in parallel, forcing, forcing the economy in a particular direction. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. So I, I've written a book about this, and it's working its way through the Oxford University Press uh, system. And I think that's right. I think there are, there are reasons why we continue to manage people in ways that don't look efficient and that we have demonstrated with a lot of research don't work particularly well, right? Uh, and yet we continue to do them. And what does it do to the sort of global efficiency of America relative to China? Does it, is there something about the, you know, trying to compete on cost when in fact you don't have the lowest labor costs and you drive all that value out, you're just going to be beaten by somebody else who does it even cheaper, aren't you? Yeah, no, it's a good point. Uh, and I think we are not really sure or clear in the U.S. how we're doing compared to our competitors, right? I mean, we tend to delude ourselves as to how well we're doing, in part when the stock market is racing ahead. And, you know, one of the things we often don't realize is other stock markets sometimes race ahead even more than ours, the Asian ones in particular. Right? So I think that is right. That is a worry we, sh we should have. It's not a worry that individual investors have. You know, they're not so concerned about what happens to the U.S. in the long run. And if you're a policy person, can you persuade voters that this is a big enough deal? And I think the answer there is no, you probably can't, uh, especially when the employers and the investors who are in charge right now are telling you that's not true, right? We're, we're obviously doing the optimal stuff, 1980s kind of economics. If we weren't doing the optimal stuff, somebody would have already done it and beaten us, you know, that kind of story. Okay. Um, Peter, so people can get a hold of your book, Future of the Office, looking at the hard choices we face from all good booksellers. And you've got a new book coming out at some point. Yeah, at some point, right. Thinking back, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Uh, I wish I had invested in Microsoft in 1977. <laughs> you know, I got very lucky on this book, Future of the Office, because I thought it was only going to be a, a topic of a couple of months, uh, because I wrote it when the pandemic was just getting started, based on what we knew already from research on telework and that sort of stuff, right? So I got lucky on that, if lucky, in the pandemic continued, right? So at least for my book, it was a good thing. It's terrible for everybody else. I guess if I were to think back to my graduate student days, I would say that what I missed and everybody else missed is how the collapse of the kind of stakeholder view of the world and the importance of government regulation was unwinding. And it wasn't a temporary thing. You know, with Thatcher in England, which was happening when I was there, and Reagan in the U.S., that those were not temporary blips, that they were changes that were going to continue on for a long period of time. And the idea that the, the state could have a important role in shaping the economy and the idea that the companies themselves would care about stakeholders and continue to care about them, continued to fade. And, you know, things just look 
remarkably unlike the way they did 40 years or so ago on, on those dimensions. Those yes. are the big Okay. And do you think that's the same across Europe as well? I think, uh, well, across the Commonwealth countries, it seems to be. Yeah, I think to some extent in, in Europe, not quite um, so much in France. And, you know, but I think in Germany, it certainly seems to be the case that worker voice, for example, is much less important than it used to be a generation or so ago. So, yeah, I think, I think it's largely true, I think. And so where could people go to keep up to date with these trends? Where do you go to for your uh, for your fix and inspiration? Well, I think that um, the serious business press, uh, there's an entire industry of business press, which is just driven by vendors, you know, <laughs> placing stories about themselves and reporting reports that consultants create to generate problems that they could then offer to solve for you. Uh, but I think the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal in the US, I'm looking at business stories about what companies are actually doing and especially what's going on inside them, um, that you can learn a lot from that because that's what we don't know much about. You know, we know what's going on in the overall economy. We don't know very much about what's going on inside individual companies and how they're thinking about things. And do you have any curated sources of news that you subscribe to that you would recommend? Well, there's this one that I get every morning. There's a UK version, a US version called Human Times, and uh, it curates basically articles that have come out about workplace-related topics, and, and they seem to be quite good. Very good. Peter, thank you very much indeed for giving us the time on the show today. Good. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.